that ADR feeling. You're listening to the Planning, Environment and Property podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. I'm John Pugh-Smith, Planning Barrister, Mediator and Facilitator. And it is in all three roles that I'm presenting this episode. Now, the context is the current round of consultation on changes to our current system of judicial review. The Government Commission Folk's Independent Review of Administrative Law, which closed on the 26th of October, and the Civil Justice Council's Review of Pre-Action Protocols, which opened on the 27th of October and closes on the 18th of December. And the case, by way of example, is the Queen on the application of Janice Hems against Bath and North East Somerset Council and Kate Jubb. A recent decision of Sir Ross Cranston, former head of the Administrative Court, sitting as a Deputy High Court judge, delivered on the 14th of October, and in which my colleague Catherine Barnes successfully acted for the Council. So let's put matters, first of all, in their consultation context. The IRAL, the acronym for the Folks Review, and incidentally on whose panel my colleagues Vikram Shadiva and Celine Cahoon happened to be sitting, was launched in July 2020 following the government's manifesto commitment to guarantee that judicial review is available to protect the rights of the individual against an overbearing state, whilst ensuring that it is not abused to conduct politics by another means or to create needless delays. The information sheet uh, also advised that the panel would consider whether the right balance is being struck between the rights of citizens to challenge executive decisions and the need for effective and efficient government. It also advised that the review would examine a range of data and evidence, including relevant case law on the development uh, of judicial review, and consider whether reform is justified and that the work forms part of the Lord Chancellor's duty to defend our world-class and independent courts and judiciary that lie at the heart of British justice and the rule of law. Those of the CJC's review are to look at all aspects of pre-action protocols, including their purpose, whether they are working effectively in practice, and what reforms, if any, are required. The launch announcement advises that the CJC is particularly interested in looking at how PAPs, that particular acronym, are working for litigants with limited means, the costs associated with PAP compliance, the potential of PAPs in online dispute resolution, and the potential for PAPs to be streamlined. They also advise that their focus is not closed and that, uh, quotes, we are conducting a preliminary survey to obtain feedback and suggestions about what ought to be the focus of the review and the priorities for reform. Now, their provisional terms of reference relevant to this episode include the following. Number four are the, quotes, soft sanctions for non-compliance with voluntary pre-action protocols, case management directions and costs orders being regularly and consistently applied. Five, should all PAPs be mandatory? Should any PAPs be mandatory? What should the sanctions for non-compliance be? And eight, are PAPs a mechanism for de facto compulsory ADR prior to commencement of litigation? Should they be? Ask the question rhetorically. Now, common to both reviews, I would suggest, is the need to take the promotion of ADR with attendant cost sanctions much more seriously and rigorously. Given in this current world of remote working, Zoom meetings and online hearings, 
that the CJC ADR's working group's final report in November 2018 included amongst its 24 recommendations uh, two which are particularly pertinent. It's uh, interesting to see how matters uh, could develop some two years onwards. A recommendation proposed that if ODR needs to establish itself in the public consciousness in order to realise its vast potential, it offers an efficient and proportionate dispute resolution to a world that increasingly embraces online services and interactions in all aspects of life. Part of the solution will undoubtedly be standard setting. And their recommendation 21, uh, the Halsey guidelines, the recommendation reads, the Halsey guidelines for the imposition of cost sanctions should be reviewed and should narrow the circumstances in which a refusal to mediate is regarded as reasonable. So, let's start by looking at the issue of dispute avoidance. And in that context, mediation is the leading mechanism, but of course there is also neutral chairing and general facilitation between parties, or just with one party in particular. Mediation is generally considered once a dispute has crystallised. Increasingly, however, the mediation process is being used more strategically for early dispute management and, I would suggest, with impressive results. This is where early review and intervention are deployed with the aim of identifying and managing conflicts. The principles underpinning the process include restarting communication between the parties, providing a safe arena for open discussion about the problems and the options, encouraging consideration of options for settlement that can include those a court could not consider. And it is not surprising that, as a result, experienced practitioners frequently see now that the damage to contracts and valuable relationships that could otherwise uh, arise um, are capable of being overcome through structured negotiation at a much earlier stage and with the resulting conservation in resources a good deal sooner and achieving a more effective and better commercial outcome. The involvement of an independent professional early on can help the parties rationalise the legal issues, rebuild the trust and the goodwill necessary to find agreement, assist with risk assessment and support the parties in making good decisions for themselves and their respective organisations. As facilitate meetings or oversee consultation exercises, bringing an objective eye and guidance to ensure that issues are addressed and not buried. So it's interesting that by way of uh, a pragmatic and proactive approach, uh, that indeed reflects the government's aspirations articulated in their government dispute resolution commitment announced by the then Justice Minister Jonathan Jangeli on the 23rd of June 2011. That included the following being proactive in the management of potential disputes and in working to prevent disputes arising or escalating in order to avoid the need to resort to the use of formal dispute mechanisms wherever possible. Using prompt, cost-effective and efficient processes for completing negotiations and resolving disputes. Choosing processes appropriate in style and proportionate in cost to the issue that needs to be resolved. Recognising that the use of appropriate dispute resolution processes can often avoid the high cost in time and resources of going to court. Finally, educating employees and officials in appropriate dispute resolution techniques in order to enable the best possible chance of success when using them. So the question then has to be asked rhetorically, why has that commitment not been more generally applied? Now, in the context of mediation, 
it's been widely accepted that it does work, it's liked by the courts, and can achieve significant and meaningful and lasting outcomes. Indeed, quoting the then uh, Lord Newberger's keynote address on the 12th of May 2015 at the Civil Mediation Council's annual conference, he stated the following. First, mediation is quicker, cheaper, and less stressful and time-consuming than litigation. Secondly, mediation is more flexible than litigation in terms of potential outcomes. Thirdly, mediation is less likely to be harmful to the long-term relationship between the parties. Fourthly, mediation is conducted privately under less pressure and in somewhat less artificial circumstances than a court hearing. Fifthly, it is far more likely that both parties will emerge as winners, or at least neither party will emerge as a disgruntled loser. So, with the courts as well regularly commenting on the benefits in a variety of disputes, one has to wonder why the take-up continues to be so slow. For it has to be recognised that unlike litigation, where the dispute will always be resolved one way or the other, a mediation may not deliver a settlement on the day. But on the other hand, there are many reasons why some mediations do not settle. It's rare for those mediations to be a complete waste of time and money because issues can be narrowed and some resolved or discarded, priorities better understood, options and opportunities are identified, and even if the result is a heightened determination to litigate, then arguably that is a result. For local authorities in particular, this can be of real value when justifying a course of action, for example, to cabinet members. So much depends on the type of ADR to be used, but the following are some of the benefits that uh, I have identified uh, by those uh, who, by myself, who are engaged in mediation within the public law system. And these are, in particular, first, it has a different tone and atmosphere to litigation, which tends to, be, to foster agreement. Second, it is flexible and can be adapted to the particular characteristics of the parties in the dispute. Third, the process is usually by consent, and if not the attendance, then certainly the participation in any agreement reached thereby giving the parties greater control of their decisions. Next, the parties can choose the third party to mediate or arbitrate the dispute, unlike a judge. Next, the parties can choose the input from a third party, for example, whether it is helping the parties to formulate their own propositions or when asked to use his or her expertise to offer an independent view to the parties or indeed some form of neutral evaluation. Next, the parties can choose how the mediation is conducted, and it's one of the core skills of the mediator to adjust the process to facilitate the conduct of the negotiations in consultation with the parties and, of course, their legal advisors. Next, the negotiation the outcome can be confidential. It can be cheaper and quicker than litigation, and most mediations only last one day. It can also be used to settle all or part of a dispute. It can be used to narrow issues, and the outcome can be by way of formal binding agreement or otherwise as the circumstances dictate. Next, it has a far wider range of outcomes. For example, an apology or an explanation can be made available rather than a narrow range of remedies available to the court, particularly when dealing with judicial review. And of course, finally, it can improve and restore relationships between the parties, which is particularly important in sectors where there are fewer players or the cost of termination greatly outweigh the quantum in a particular dispute. And of course, that quantum is not just in monetary terms, but also in terms of uh, emotion and 
relationship rebuilding or breakdown. As far back as 2001, Lord Wolfe, then Lord Chief Justice, articulated the capability of this field to embrace mediation. In the leading case of Cowell against Plymouth City Council, he remarked, The importance of this appeal is that it illustrates that even in disputes between public authorities and the members of the public for whom they are responsible, insufficient attention is paid to the paramount importance of avoiding litigation wherever this is possible. Particularly in the case of these disputes, both sides must by now be acutely conscious of the contribution alternative dispute resolution can make to resolving disputes in a manner which both meets the needs of the parties and the public and saves time, expense and stress. He went on to add, This case will have served some purpose if it makes it clear that the lawyers acting on both sides of a dispute of this sort are under a heavy obligation to resort to litigation only if it is really unavoidable. If they cannot resolve the whole of the dispute by the use of the complaints procedure, they should resolve the dispute as far as is practicable without involving litigation. At least in this way, some of the expense and delay will be avoided. So, where do we now stand? Given the tension between the constitutional and supervisory role judicial review on the one hand and the private and confidential nature of mediation on the other. The principle that judicial review is an important constitutional check on the power of government does not, for some, sit easily with the idea that disputes can be settled on a confidential mediation basis. But nonetheless, there is a practical consideration to be borne in mind. And that is that the majority of judicial review disputes settle without requiring any sort of intervention. The nature of the remedies in judicial review are such that public bodies can avoid the challenge simply by agreeing to reconsider and come to a fresh decision. And this is often the quickest and cheapest way out of a dispute for a public body. Indeed, in this context, many practitioners consider that mediation has perhaps a more advantageous role when uh, utilised at an earlier stage, and that is part of the recommendations that I am hoping that both folks and the CJ reviews will continue to identify, highlight, and provide a practical means of their achievement. So, we turn next to, is the actual dispute the subject of judicial review or potential judicial review suitable for ADR? Now, not all disputes are suitable, and I do recognise that, but factors that could be considered include, first, the nature of the dispute or claim, second, whether the claim can be settled by negotiation, third, what outcome the client wants, Next, what added value the involvement of a mediator might bring, whether the client wants to be involved in the decision-making process, time considerations, is it urgent or not, other than the judicial review time clock, and finally, cost considerations. In other words, what will it cost to mediate and how does this compare with the anticipated costs of litigation? Factors that might make a dispute unsuitable for anything other than litigation include the nature of the dispute, for example, those requiring the declaratory function of the court, cases uh, where uh, there is an ultra-virus issue, where ADR may not ultimately resolve the dispute, for example, in the planning context where uh, the matter has to be determined by the Secretary of State. Next, the personalities of those involved in the dispute. And finally at the extent to which what can be achieved through mediation can ensure that the matter can be kept 
away from the courts or certainly only requires effectively a mention through a court order or a continuing stay. So where should ADR be best deployed? Now, again, there are some points that need to be borne in mind, particularly considering, for example, the Heathrow litigation recently. And that is where the dispute is complex, involving multiple parties, and where it to be litigated would take up a significant court amount of court time. Next, to consider the relationship between the parties, so, for example, where they need or have to work together in the future. Next, when negotiations are broken down, where the introduction of an independent neutral third party can help restart dialogue, especially where the parties are in general agreement about the course of action required to resolve the dispute, but can't agree on the detail. Next, a claim for damages uh, within judicial review proceedings and to enable the parties to take a more needs-based view of the outcome. And finally, where there's an imbalance between the parties where negotiation has been difficult or could be difficult and where a mediator can provide a more level playing field so that all voices can be heard. So what of mediation in the administrative court? Now, unfortunately, because of the confidential nature of both ADR and largely pre-action and related judicial review correspondence, it is difficult to point to any specific examples, bearing in mind that the types of cases identified already, other than anecdotally, do not always necessarily reach the public eye. Furthermore, uh, the study work undertaken by Sophie Biron of University of Birmingham uh, in conjunction with Richard Gordon of Brick Court Chambers, uh, which was the subject of a 2016 Hart Judicial Review Conference paper, and from a peer group conference held in October 2016, led to positive um, awareness, but not necessarily to outcomes. Because at that October 2016 um, conference, at which I was present together with various other specialist bar association representatives, and members of the judiciary, including Lord Cardmouth and Sir Ernest Ryder, whilst it was clear that there had been a surprising uptake and success in the use of ADR across the broad range of public law specialisms covered by administrative law, unfortunately, it required further empirical work, and that's when the Birmingham study ran out of funding and manpower to undertake a detailed study of administrative court files. Nonetheless, the CJC's uh, 2018 Working Group's ADR final report did suggest, and I indeed suggest in this episode, that there is a suitable way forward which could be adopted using the notice to mediate procedure utilised by the Canadian court system in British Columbia. And in this context, the Working Group commented as follows that the advantage of an automatic self-policing ADR system like Family MIAMS, that's the um, triaging system adopted by the family courts, is that they do not require intervention or court time. The working group said they thought that the most promising first step in this direction could be the introduction of the Notice to Mediate scheme as already operating in British Columbia. They went on to comment that essentially if one party issues a notice to mediate, being a formal invitation by one party to the other to mediate, then a mediation will kick into action and a mediator will automatically be appointed from a court-approved roster. That's if the parties don't agree on a mediator themselves. And again, without any active consideration or intervention by the court. 
They also pointed out the court has a residual supervisory role uh, that it could take and that the indications that they had from practitioners who use the system uh, was that it had had the effect of making the court-based system culturally normal, that there was very little or no satellite dispute about the fitness or appropriateness of a given case to mediate, and that they had the evidence in British Columbia that successful steps towards increasing public awareness and acceptance of mediation as a technique had been successful. However, they did point out that if the, a notice to mediate system was going to introduce, a number of critical policy decisions would arise. Uh, first, should there be an ability to refer to court if the notice to mediate issued by an unreasonable opponent who you, you believed would never settle would arise? And it was pointed out that a striking feature of the British Columbia system is that the only basis for relief from the obligation to mediate there is the attendance at a previous failed mediation. But on the other hand, they pointed out, second, that, that if the, the stakeholders are sufficiently confident that there is an ADAR product of guaranteed quality available as a default system, then a court-rostered system of mediators could be utilised. Indeed, one reflects for a moment that the Court of Appeal somewhere has actually had such a system in place. Finally, and crucially, they drew attention to the fact that under the British Columbia system, sanctions for ignoring a notice to mediate could include striking out the defaulting party as well as cost orders, and that rulemakers would have to decide whether that was too severe a sanction under a notice to mediate procedure in England and Wales. Now, there are echoes there of, for example, uh, CPR 44 in terms of conduct and indeed uh, in the pre-action judicial review protocol in terms of uh, the effects of that. One also sees echoes already um, in the practice direction from the upper tribunal of the Lands Chamber and indeed their latest um, practice direction published on the 19th of October of this year makes it very clear that they are willing to accept stays and to actually look at the conduct of a party to, who refuses to engage in ADR as part of the overall costs order at the end of the reference. And indeed, it's quite obvious that a more effective triage system can and indeed should be adopted by the administrative court. And I would suggest as both part of the pre-action protocol requirements even now, and also at the permission stage, this aspect needs to be looked at much more rigorously and also uh, have evidence as to the extent to which a party has or has not truly tried to engage in ADR. There's also more use made of uh, the stay procedure as well to keep that time clock from running too swiftly. And indeed, there are examples uh, indeed one which I was involved in, where stays were used very effectively to allow the matter to be mediated and resolved within a month. And that involved a number of complex issues to do with heritage buildings and four parties. And now to the HEMS case. Now HEMS, very briefly, was a judicial review about the refusal by the Council of a Section 102 power to revoke um, a cattle fence that uh, Ms Chubb, the interested party, had put up, despite being within an area of outstanding natural beauty. And the reason why the council had declined so to do was because they didn't regard uh, the exercise of the Section 102 power as being expedient, due not only to permitted development rights, which could lower the height of the fence, 
but also stock control considerations themselves. Now, in the context of this uh, episode, it's interesting in the way in which uh, Sir Ross Cranston, who, when he was head of the administrative court, introduced the uh, guide that we now have since 2016 and included reference to ADR within that, but also the way in which uh, he actually raised the issue in this particular context. Having refused uh, the judicial review claim on all grounds as being without merit, he said the following. In addressing the court, the interested party, Ms Chubb, stated that if the claimant had approached her at the time of the alterations to her property, the situation could have been resolved. For the claimant, Ms Dahon replied that it was not through lack of trying on the claimant's part that matters had escalated and has added that the claimant had made a number of attempts to mediate. Ms Chubb has written to the court to dispute aspects of Ms Dahon's claims and it is not for me to establish the facts to attribute blame or to suggest a resolution. However, I understand from what Ms Chubb told me that she is now willing to negotiate to resolve matters between the claimant and herself Given Ms Chubb has given this indication in open court, I very much hope she will follow through with a suggestion to the claimant as to how matters can be resolved. That would be to the public benefit, not just the benefit of these two parties. Think how this matter could have been resolved had the judicial review proceedings been stayed for mediation before they had to come before the High Court judge in question. So, by way of conclusion... In my view, both the IRAL and CJC reviews need to highlight to government the tangible benefits that could be derived from the greater promotion and use of ADR within the current judicial review system. Furthermore, that there are simple but effective ways of conveying these benefits. Finally, I leave you with this thought. What is clear, beyond doubt, particularly as we try and move forward into 2021, is that there needs to be much more active encouragement of a less adversarial and more nuanced approach to public law disputes. And in that way, we can help improve the quality, speed and certainty of decision-making and reduce the uncertainties arising from the threat of potential legal challenge with its consequent costs and delays and improving relationships. These are all benefits, not just in the wider public interest, but also for the common good. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.